Well, if we could, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling this morning, if we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read. Mark chapter 13, page 1024. And if we read again at verse 21. Mark chapter 13, verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. I'm sure that we've all heard or or used the phrase, prevention is better than cure. Prevention is better than cure. And uh, I suppose that we use a phrase like that when uh, we can see that it's better to stop something from happening than to try and deal with the consequences after after it has happened. It's better to prevent the problem than to try and fix the problem after the event. Prevention is better than cure. And I suppose you could apply it to many areas of our life, from the simple thing of putting on the seatbelt before we begin a journey. Prevention is better than cure. Or blowing out a candle before you go to bed. Prevention is better than cure. But when we come to this chapter in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is giving his final discourse to his disciples. They've been with him for the past three years under his teaching and they've seen him perform many miracles. They've heard him preach a glorious message of salvation. They've stood and witnessed many being challenged by him and many being changed by him. And now as the days to his death draw closer and closer, Jesus takes this opportunity to give one final address to his disciples. But instead of encouraging his graduates, you could say, instead of encouraging them to keep on with the faith that they have come to love and know, and instead of assuring his disciples that they will be okay and that the Lord will be with them through anything, and instead of giving them words of counsel and guidance to his students, Jesus expresses his fears for them. But he expresses his future fears Not only for them, but for all of the disciples of Jesus. And instead of following the theory of prevention is better than cure. By giving advice on preventative measures which can be taken in order to avoid what will happen in the future. Jesus states that prevention is impossible. Prevention is impossible. Because what Jesus tells his disciples in this chapter is that the end is coming. The end is coming. The end of the temple is coming. And the end of the world is coming. And the language which Jesus uses in chapter 13 is what we often call apocalyptic language. Language of the apocalypse. It's the language which unveils. That's what the word apocalypse means. It unveils what will happen in the future. And Jesus says that prevention is impossible. Because you cannot prevent what's going to happen in the future. You can't prevent 
the end of the temple coming. And you can't prevent the end of the world coming either. But Jesus says that the only cure, if it is a cure at all, the only precaution that the disciples can take, he says, is be on guard. Be on guard. And those words or words to that effect, they're repeated throughout this entire chapter, throughout the whole of chapter 13, because Jesus says time and time again, take heed, be on guard, keep watch, watch and pray, stay awake. And Jesus gives us this advice because prevention is impossible. The end is coming. Therefore, be on guard, says Jesus, I have told you all things beforehand. But before Jesus speaks about the end of the world, which we'll look at next time, Jesus first of all speaks about the end of the temple and what that will be like. And he expresses his future fears for his disciples in this passage which we read earlier, verses 1 to 23. And we can consider these future fears of Jesus under three headings. Future destruction, future deception, and future desolation. Future destruction, future deception, and future desolation. So we look firstly at future destruction. Future destruction. Read again at verse 1 with me. Verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. And so, at this point, it's now Tuesday afternoon. It's Tuesday afternoon, and only days before Jesus will be crucified on a Roman cross. It's the Tuesday before the Friday, where Jesus will be crucified. And Jesus begins to speak to his disciples about the future destruction of the temple. But if you remember back in chapter 11, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he rode in on a Sunday afternoon, the Sunday before the Friday crucifixion. And he arrived in the temple with people before him and following behind him, and they were all singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then on Monday morning, Monday before the Friday, Jesus curses a fig tree, a fig tree that was in full bloom with no figs on it. It had the outward appearance of being, in, being full of life, but it was fruitless. And in the act of cursing the tree, Jesus was cursing the Jewish religion of the temple in saying that it was the only way of salvation. But later that Monday, Monday afternoon, Jesus entered the temple for the second time. And he drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple court. And he overturned all the tables of the money changers and he asked them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves? And then on, on Tuesday morning, so it's, we've done Sunday, Monday, Tuesday morning, Jesus was in the temple for the third time. And as we've seen uh, these recent chapters, Jesus was confronted by the religious police, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And they came to Jesus asking him, who gave you the authority to do that to the temple? Who gave you the authority to drive everyone out of the temple? 
But Jesus, knowing their heart, he told them a parable. A parable which described what they were planning on doing to Jesus. That they were going to kill him. Nevertheless, that didn't deter the the religious police because they sent the Pharisees and they sent the Herodians and then they sent the Sadducees to question Jesus further. And in each case, Jesus condemned their hypocrisy and he corrected their heresy. And then he continued, as we saw last week, he continued to condemn the teaching of the scribes. And so within two days, from Sunday to Tuesday afternoon, Jesus has condemned every aspect of the Jewish religion. Because what the Jewish religion had become was a money-making business based upon a self-righteous religion which dethroned God and exalted man. But more than that, the temple itself had become an idol. The temple was an idol. And in the opening words of this chapter, we see that for the last time, Jesus walks out of the temple, never to return. He walks out of the temple, turns around to it, and condemns it. And Jesus' condemnation of the temple, it's initiated, as we just read, when one of the disciples asks Jesus, they say to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, it's interesting that Mark doesn't actually tell us which disciple made this statement. It's just one of the disciples. But he tells us in verse 3, all the names of the disciples who were with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. There was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Some commentators have suggested that the unnamed disciple was Judas. Because he was always obsessed with outward appearances and money. And that would make sense because... That was the very reason why Jesus condemned the temple. It was all based upon outward appearance and the abuse of money. But history tells us that about 20 years before Jesus was born, so 20 BC, Herod the Great, he began to work on the temple. He began to enlarge the temple and renovate parts of it so that it became this vast religious complex. And so by the time Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, probably about 30 AD, the temple has been under construction for about 50 years. And it still isn't finished. And it still wouldn't be finished for another 30 years until AD 64. That's when the renovations would be complete. But the reason Herod the Great undertook all this this mammoth task of, of renovating the temple and making it the most beautiful building in Jerusalem wasn't to honour and please God. It was to honour and please the Jews. And to please their religion. And there were many who marvelled at the vastness and the beauty of the temple. But as Jesus walked out of the temple for the last time. Having condemned every aspect of their religion. He prophesies about the future destruction of the temple. He says to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus' condemnation of the temple was all because it had moved away from God's ordained purpose. Because the temple, 
It was God's residence. It was the place in which you could meet with God and experience forgiveness of your sins. It was the place where sinners could come before a holy God and worship him. But by the time Jesus was born, the temple was a symbol of pride. It had become an idol in which the Jews worshipped the temple instead of the God of the temple. And because their religion had become a religion of idolatry, it progressed to a show of self-righteousness and a parade of honour. Their religion was a religion based upon outward, outward appearances. It was based upon pleasing conscience. And it was based upon making a show before God. And you know, there is a great lesson for us here. A great lesson. That a religion of outward appearances before others is no religion at all. Because a religion where you are seen to be seen and you're dressed in, well, the religious garb, whether it's your suit and tie or your skirt and hat, and you look the part and you look presentable before God, my friend, it's no religion at all. Because what does it matter if your heart is far from God? What does it matter? What does it matter if your only intention of coming to church on a Sunday morning is either to please someone in your family or to please your own conscience? What use is a religion of outward appearance before a God who sees and knows the heart? What use are all our acts of self-righteousness before a holy God who considers all our acts of righteousness as filthy rags? What use is it to worship the stones of a building and idolize them and make them the gods that we worship when they're like everything else. They're like everything else. It won't last. It doesn't stand the test of time. It'll crumble like every other building. My friend, any religion based upon outward appearances and pleasing conscience and making a show before God, it's a dead religion. It's a dead religion. It was J.C. Ryle who said, let us learn from this solemn saying. The true godliness of a church does not consist in its buildings for public worship. But in the faith and godliness of its members. And that was one thing Jesus didn't find in the temple. He didn't find faith and he didn't find godliness. And when I read these words, I'm left asking myself, what would Jesus say about this church? What would Jesus find in Barvis Free Church? Would he find a religion based upon outward appearances and pleasing conscience and making a show before God? Or would he find faith in Jesus Christ? And a desire to live godly lives before him. I hope it's the latter. Rather than the former. And so we see in this passage that Jesus is expressing his future fears for his disciples. We've considered the future destruction of the temple. But secondly, in relation to the future destruction of the temple. Jesus speaks about a future desolation. A future deception. We'll come to future desolation in a minute. Future deception. If you look at verse 3. 
It says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And so having left this grand structure of the temple for the last time and having condemned its religion as, and condemned it as something that's going to experience future destruction, Jesus and his disciples, they go to the Mount of Olives, which was located outside the city of Jerusalem, opposite the temple, overlooking the temple. And they're sitting there. But what's interesting to note is the language that Mark uses to describe Jesus' actions. Because Mark tells us that Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. He's adopted the posture of a judge who's sitting opposite the guilty suspect. And the guilty suspect is the temple. And Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the temple. And we're told that the first disciples whom Jesus called from their nets to become fishermen, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they came to Jesus privately with this question about his judgment. And they say, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The disciples want to know when the temple will be destroyed and what signs will be given so that they will know when these things will be. But what we see in Jesus' answer is that he affirms to them that what they need is not a sign, but to stay faithful and be on guard. Jesus says in verse 5, Take heed that no one leads you astray. And so the, re the request for a sign wasn't the answer. Because back in chapter 8, if you remember, the Pharisees, they asked Jesus, they came to Jesus asking for a sign to prove that he was the Messiah. And Jesus asked the question, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And Jesus said that no sign shall be given because looking and reading and interpreting the signs, they only lead people astray. Looking for a sign, he says, is a distraction from what's more important, and that is being faithful to Jesus Christ. And you know, there are many people who want a sign. And they say that they won't believe in Jesus, and uh, they won't commit their life to following Jesus Christ. They won't ever become a Christian until they see a sign or a miracle. But Jesus says, a sign shall not be given. And that was the case with Thomas. There are many people like Thomas. You remember Thomas, how after the resurrection of Jesus, all the disciples had met with Jesus. They saw the resurrected Christ, except for Thomas. And even though Thomas was told by the disciples, we've seen Jesus. He refused to believe him. And he said to the disciples, well, unless I see the hand print of, his, of the nails and put my finger into the print of his nails, I put my hand into his side where the spear went through, I will not believe. I will not believe. 
And we know Thomas, he was given the opportunity. Jesus appeared to him. But Jesus said to his disciples about those who would hear the message of the gospel in the generations to come. That's you and me. Jesus said that blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's what faith is. Faith is not seeing, yet believing and trusting what God says in his word. And Jesus says that a sign will not be given. Because in the Bible we've been given everything we need to know how to be saved. We've been given everything. And my friend, Christianity, it's not about seeing signs and miracles. It's not about seeing all the miracles around us. Christianity, it's all about faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It's about committing your life to following Jesus Christ as he is revealed to us in the Bible. It's about living according to the teaching of the Bible. And so what you need today is not a sign from heaven to prove that God exists and that the Bible is the truth. You know that already. What you need is to commit your life to Jesus Christ and stay faithful to him because, as Jesus says, there will be many who come and try to lead you astray. There will be many who come with false doctrine and try and lead you away from the truth. But you need to commit your life to him and follow him because he is the truth. But Jesus warns that there's going to be some that come and they're going to lead you astray. He says in verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he and they will lead many astray. And what Jesus was saying was that before the future destruction of the temple, which took place in 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple, there will be this future deception of the people. There will be many who come and claim that they are the Messiah, that they are the Christ. And they'll deceive many people. It won't just be one or two people who claim that they are the Christ, but there will be many people who appear and claim that they are the Messiah and they will lead many people astray. And this prophecy of Jesus, it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled because history tells us that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were many false Christs who appeared and they led many of the Jews astray. And this was because the Jews were Waiting. And they're still waiting. They're still waiting for the Messiah who will appear as the son of David. Who will sit upon the throne of David and establish his kingdom forever. The Jews and the scribes, well, they, they taught and they continue to teach that the Messiah will be an earthly king like King David. Who will have an earthly rule like King David. And he will overthrow the enemies of Israel like King David did again and again. And because the Jews are awaiting this Messiah who would come and revolt against the oppression of Israel. The oppression at that time was by the Romans. They were waiting for this Messiah to come. And for years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were many false Christs who appeared. Saying, I am he, I am the Christ. And they led the people astray. 
And in those intervening years, up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there were all these Christs who appeared. And they appeared and they had all these small revolts against the Romans. Which is why Jesus says in verse 7, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And what Jesus was saying was that there will be small revolts led by false Christs. And there will be rumors of small revolts against the Romans. But that will not be when the destruction of the temple comes. The end is not yet. No, he says, nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. All these things, these birth pains... With wars and rumours of war, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines. They all took place. That's what we need to understand. They all took place between the resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so with these words, Jesus isn't prophesying about the end of the world. He does that in the next section. But here he's prophesying about the end of the temple. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And what Jesus says is that before the destruction of the temple. There will be many birth pains. And many revolts against the Romans. But there will also be persecution for the Christian. That's what he says in verse 9. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils. And you'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated for all my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And what Jesus affirms to his disciples is that they will have a fearful future. There's a fearful future ahead. He says it's not going to be an easy road for you. But Jesus says to them that as Christians living in a hostile world. They need to be on their guard. And they need to persevere to the end. They have to keep going, no matter what. And you know, my friend, to be a Christian in the first century, it really meant taking up your cross and following Jesus. Because to be a Christian literally meant that you were probably signing your death warrant. Because in the years leading up to the destruction of the temple, the Roman emperor Nero, I'm sure we've all heard of Nero, He was on the rampage to completely destroy Christianity. And Nero, he had this satanic hatred for Christians. To the point that if Nero ever found out that you were a Christian, you would be the subject of sport. He would either have you covered by the hide of a wild beast and then have you mauled to death by dogs, or he would have you impaled upon a pole Outside his palace and he'd set you on fire. He would, you would be a lamppost in his garden. That's what he thought of Christians. 
And it was knowing that fearful future that Jesus said to his disciples, be on guard and persevere to the end. But despite this fearful future of persecution, there's one statement here which Jesus stresses to his disciples because he says in verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now the word translated nations, it's very misleading because it makes us think that before the destruction of the temple, the gospel will go to all the the nations of the world. Or it leads us to conclude that before the end of the world takes place, the gospel must go to all nations. But that's not what Jesus meant here. The word nations can also be translated as Gentiles, which were those who are not Jews. The Gentiles were those living outside the land of Palestine, those who weren't Israelites. And before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Gentiles received the gospel. The ministry of the Apostle Paul was a ministry to the Gentiles. And his ministry succeeded despite his persecution. And it succeeded not only because Jesus, as he promises here, he promised that the Holy Spirit would be with his people and speak through them when they share the gospel. The spread of the gospel succeeded because the Christians in the first century had an earnest desire for people To know about Jesus. That was their burden. That more people would know about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard of the children's TV program. uh, Called The Story Keepers. Brilliant TV program. Used to be on channel 4 when I was younger. And you can now watch it on YouTube. All the episodes are on there. And I'd recommend it to every parent or Every grandparent to show their children and their grandchildren. Because the story keepers, they are first century Christians. And it's accurate in what they present. It's amazing. They're first century Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. That's like a cartoon. And these Christians, their earnest desire, above everything else, is that more and more people will hear about the stories of Jesus. That's why they're the story keepers. And even though the story keepers are being chased by the Romans, they are desperate to share the gospel and for people to hear more about Christ. They want people to know Jesus because they consider the message of Jesus as so precious and so glorious that they want everyone to know the good news, regardless of what it costs them. And my friend, That was the desire of the Christian in the first century. But is that the desire of the Christian in the 21st century? Is that our desire? Or are we just content in our day and generation of comfortable Christianity? Are we happy to be living in a day when it's better for us to keep our faith private And just keep it to ourselves. The thing we do on Sunday. Maybe on Wednesday night. But otherwise we don't say a word. But you and I both know. That that's not what Jesus has called Christians to do. We've been called. To take up our cross. Like the first century. Christians were called to do. And like them we may have a fearful future. We may have abuse in what we're saying to people. But our earnest desire. Ought to be. To share this glorious message. 
regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost. And you know, that was the testimony of the Apostle Paul. You know about Paul's ministry. Beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was starving. He experienced all these things. That doesn't mean we will. But what he said was, we have this ministry. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And he went on to say, for our light affliction, it's but for a moment. And it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they are temporal. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal. They are eternal. My friend, we have this ministry. This is what we've been called to as Christians. And Paul says, we have this ministry. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And so we see in this passage that Jesus is expressing his future fears for the disciples. We've considered the future destruction of the temple. And Jesus has spoken about the future deception of the people. But lastly, and again in relation to the destruction of the temple, Jesus speaks about this future desolation. A future desolation. Because he says in verse 14, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And when Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation, he's referring to a prophecy from the book of Daniel. A prophecy about an invader who will enter Jerusalem and commit an act of outrage in the temple. And in Daniel 11, Daniel prophesied that an army shall appear and their leader shall, he will defile the sanctuary and stop all the daily sacrifices and put in its place the abomination of desolation. And here Jesus draws attention to Daniel's prophecy, but he gives further detail as to what it will be like on this future day of desolation. Because he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Jesus' prophecy of the future desolation of Jerusalem, it's a fearful future. And the words of Jesus, they were actually fulfilled in the year 66 AD. Two years after the temple which Herod the Great had built. The temple was completed in 64 AD. You remember it was a temple created not to praise God but to exalt man. And after over 80 years of constructing and reconstructing this temple completed in 64 AD. Two years later, 66 AD, 40 years after Jesus had made the prophecy. 
The wars and rumours of war they had continued to escalate until the Jewish revolt against the Romans began. Where there was this group called the Zealots, they rallied against the they rallied all the Jews together to rebel against the Romans. And they claimed that the Messiah would come during the heat of battle and he would overthrow the Romans and take the throne in Israel. And for a while during the war, it looked like the Zealots would win against the Romans. But the Romans, they hid back. There were legions of Roman soldiers who went through the whole city of Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, the Roman Caesar, who was Titus, he ordered the whole city of Jerusalem and its magnificent temple that he had spent, that Herod had spent 80 years building, he ordered it all to be razed to the ground. Not one stone left upon another. And it said that the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans, it was some of the most appalling and indescribable events which ever took place. It was a terrifying experience. But what we ought to take from the events of history is that Jesus' prophecy about a future destruction of the temple and the future deception of the people and the future desolation of Jerusalem, it was all fulfilled. Just as Jesus said it would be. Which means that his word can be trusted. His word can be trusted. And that's why he reaffirms all these things to his disciples. As he concludes the section in verse 20. He says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And in these words, Jesus affirms this, fu this fearful future. He affirms the destruction of the temple, the deception of the people, and the desolation in Jerusalem. But what Jesus means by cutting short the days in verse 20, it's when the Lord reduced the length of time that mankind would live upon the earth. He reduced it, as we were singing in Psalm 90, to three score and ten. Or if by reason of strength, four score. But you know, just looking at these closing words of Jesus, he mentions the word about the elect. And there are many people who love to hide behind the doctrine of God's election. Where they take comfort in the fact that it's okay not to be a Christian just now. And there's no urgency to follow Jesus Christ. Because if you're in the elect, if you're part of God's election, well, you'll be saved. And there's nothing you can do about it. But I have to agree with my friend J.C. Ryle. He says in his commentary, the subject of election is without doubt deep and mysterious. But sadly, it has often been perverted and abused. For one thing, says Ryle, we must never forget 
that God's election does not destroy man's responsibility and man's accountableness to his own soul. Because the same Bible which speaks of election always addresses men and women as free agents. Free agents. And the Bible calls them to repent, to believe, to ask, to seek, to knock, to pray, to strive, to labor. He says, therefore, let us never forget that the great thing we have to do is to repent and believe in the gospel. We have no right to take comfort from God's election, he says, unless we can show plain evidence of repentance and faith in our life. And we're not to stand still troubling ourselves with anxious speculations of whether or not we are in the elect when God commands us plainly. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so my friend, if you want to try and hide behind the doctrine of God's election, the Bible reminds you plainly, you are responsible for your own soul. You are responsible for your own soul. And Jesus is commanding you today, be on your guard. For I have told you all things beforehand. And you know, isn't it better to know something beforehand so that you'll be ready when it comes? Isn't prevention better than cure? And the same is true about the day of judgment. Isn't it better for you to know about Jesus Christ and seek his forgiveness for your sins and commit your life to following him? Isn't it better for you to stand on the side of Christ in this life than to stand condemned like the temple in the next? What would be better? To know the truth now or to realize it when you're too late? Because that's what hell is. The truth realized. Too late. But I just want to say as a word of conclusion. Time has gone. Even though we've witnessed Jesus walking out of the temple for the last time. And he's condemned the temple. He's condemned the Jewish religion. And said that's not the way to God. Even though he walked out the temple for the last time. That wasn't the last glimpse we were given of the temple in Mark's gospel. Because you remember when Jesus died at Calvary. Having shed his precious blood. And having been condemned in our place. Mark takes us back to the temple. Right in. Into the Holy of Holies. And he presents to us this curtain. The curtain that separated sinful man from holy God. And Mark tells us that when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And in that moment, access was made. The way was open for us to come. To come to God's throne of grace and obtain mercy. And that's the message which Jesus has for you today in the gospel. A message of mercy. That whilst you're still on mercy's ground. He says the way is open. Access has been made. 
And he says to us, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we ask that thou wouldest bless thy truth to us. We thank thee for it. We thank thee, O Lord, that every word of Jesus may be trusted. That he is one who has spoken about the future. And help us, Lord, we pray, to trust our future with him. To trust our future into his hands. To cast every care upon him. Because he is one who cares for us. O Lord, help us to see that he is the Christ who calls us to come to him. To come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Lord, bless thy word to us this day. Help us to store it in our heart. To lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust cannot corrupt. And thieves cannot break in and steal. Oh, help us to be wise. To make our foundation upon the rock. That will stand for time and for eternity. Do us good then we pray. Go before us for Jesus' sake. Amen. We shall conclude by singing in Psalm 119. <coughs> Psalm 119. We're singing from verse 172, that's page 415. Page 415, Psalm 119, the last four or five verses of the psalm. 119 from verse 172. My tongue of thy most blessed word shall speak and it confess, because all thy commandments are perfect righteousness. Let thy strong hand make help to me, thy precepts are my choice. I longed for thy salvation, Lord, and in thy law rejoice. Down to the end of the psalm, of Psalm 119, to God's praise. My tongue, oh my most blessed word, shall speak and it because all thy commandments are perfect
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.